So would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we are continuing our study in what is known as the Lord's Prayer, but probably more accurately could be referred to as the Disciples' Prayer, because our Lord is giving us instruction uh, on how to order our praying, the things that we should include. So let's read from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. And again, we know that God always blesses the reading of His own inspired Word. So this morning, we're continuing our studies in the Lord's Prayer, and we come to the fifth petition Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, when we uh, pray this petition, we are acknowledging five things. We acknowledge that our sin is an unpaid debt. We acknowledge that only uh, God can forgive that debt or cancel that debt. We acknowledge that God is willing to cancel that debt. Uh, Fourthly, we acknowledge the need to confess that debt to God. And then fifthly, we acknowledge that we will forgive others uh, because our debt has been forgiven by God. So, first of all then, we acknowledge our sin as an unpaid debt. There are at least five Greek words in the New Testament for sin— One means to miss the mark, one means to slip or fall, one means to step over the line, Uh, one means to be completely abandoned to, to sin, to be completely lawless. And the fifth word used for sin is this word used by Jesus here in the Lord's Prayer where he calls it debt. Sin is a debt. We know that it is sin that Jesus is referring to because of the parallel passage in Luke 11 and verse 4, where if you're using the ESV or the authorized version, um, uh, it, it reads like this. It follows the original, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those indebted to us. So, those words, debt and sin, are used interchangeably. Now, let's remember who's praying this prayer those who can come and address God as their Father, our Father who is in heaven. So, these are Christian people, people who by the grace of God have been adopted into the family of God and alone can address address God as their Father. Father, forgive us our debts. And in praying that prayer, Uh, this person not only is acknowledging their sin, but also they're acknowledging their sin as a debt incurred before God. And this is very important, because there are some Christians who believe that through a second experience of the Spirit, you can reach a state of sinless perfection in this life that you can conquer sin completely, that you can be sanctified 
wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely. Now, if that is true, why did Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our debts? Jesus would be teaching us here a prayer that would make us content with something less than his best. And this prayer knocks that whole perfectionist teaching on its head, along with 1 John 1 and verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The Lord's prayer absolutely demolishes the doctrine of sinless perfection. Now, admittedly, there are fewer that seem to uh, um, believe that doctrine and have embraced that doctrine as a number of years ago. But I'm constantly amazed when I meet people who claim that they're sanctified holy. If they know their own hearts, surely they must realize that they're not sinless. But what they do is this. They change the name of sin. So if they fail to come to church, it's a limitation of the flesh. Uh, If they fail in their duty to evangelize, it's a shortcoming. If If they're a little unkind to their kids, It's an infirmity. I've got news for you. It's S-I-N. It's sin. That's what the Bible calls it. And sin is a spiritual uh, debt in God's sight. I hope no one has been here, has been foolish enough to embrace such a doctrine. But let me ask you, as a Christian, are you constantly aware of your sin And do you see your sin as a debt incurred before God? You see, we can be very slow to acknowledge our sin before God. The Greek has the little word kai and at the head of this sentence. So it should read, give us today our daily bread and, and forgive us our debts. Meaning that just like our need for bread, we have a Uh, daily need of forgiveness. And if I fail to confess my sin on a daily, continual basis, the amount of spiritual debt that I incur with God increases and spoils and soils my relationship uh, with Him. So every day I live as a Christian, every day that I feel as a Christian, I need to come and confess that sin to God. There's nothing worse, they tell us, than having a a mountain of debt uh, hanging over us. Financial debt, that is. Well, there is one thing that's worse than that, and that is having a mountain of spiritual debt hanging over us. And every time I allow the world to shift my focus and affection from the Lord Jesus Every time my love diminishes for Him and my affections cool towards Him, every time I don't love Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself, I incur debt, and that debt needs to be confessed to God. But secondly, we also acknowledge in this petition that only God can forgive that debt. We pray to Him, forgive us our debts. That although my sin incurs a debt, I cannot pay that debt in and of myself. We don't say, here's a payment to cover my debt, or here are some promises about the future to make up for my debt. 
Here is some obedience that will outweigh my debt. Here are some works that will compensate for my debt. You see, when we pray this prayer, we not only see our sin as a debt, we are brought to the position where we acknowledge that only God can forgive that debt. Our sin is a breach in God's law that demands payment, but I come acknowledging that only God in Christ can take away that debt. And as a Christian, I sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, or just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And as thy bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I find I now sing that hymn, more often and more intelligently than I ever did in my unregenerate state when that hymn was popular. There are times when my heart seems cold. I have no sense of burning love to God, and often that comes on the heels of a miserable failure in life or in thought or even in ministry, and my, my conscience cries out before God, you have this great debt before Him. And I have to say and sing again, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and as thy bids me come to thee, I, O Lamb of God, I come. You see, in praying this petition, I am acknowledging that my sin is a debt, and I am acknowledging my inability to pay that debt, that only God can remove that debt. So when I pray this petition, forgive us our debts, I'm acknowledging, first of all, that my sin is an unpaid debt. I'm acknowledging that only God can cancel that debt. And thirdly, I'm acknowledging that God is willing to cancel that debt. For you see, whatever Jesus commands us to pray for, that obviously falls into the realm of the will of God. This is one of the great difficulties with prayer— praying in the will of God. 1 John 5 and verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. But what is His will? So George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist, his, um, his um, wife had four miscarriages. And then in 1743, she gave birth to a little boy, and George Whitfield was convinced that this little boy was going to do great things for God and, uh, and was going to be a preacher of the gospel and uh, that he would be really effective in the service of God. And the little boy um, took ill, and George Whitfield was convinced that God had assured him that the boy would live, and the boy died. And George Whitfield was inconsolable, thinking he was praying in the will of God, but obviously it wasn't the will of God. And that's our problem. How do we know what is the will of God when it comes to uh, particular items for prayer? So I might, I might want to pray for a new car, but how do I know it's God's will to give me a new car? He might want me to drive uh, the car into the ground. Or I might pray that, as in the days of Joshua, that the sun would stand still, or more accurately, that the world would stop spinning. And I, I then would um, 
uh, curiosity would want me to see that that would happen, how God maintained gravity when the world stopped spinning. But He doesn't answer prayer to satisfy my greed or my curiosity. How do I know that, that the prayers that I pray fall into the will of God? But here is one prayer that I, I, I need not hesitate to ask that question. If God has told us to pray, forgive us our debts, we can be absolutely sure that it is the will of God to forgive us our debts. Because the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, My Father who is in heaven, forgive us our debts. Um. Sometimes I think we have too narrow a view of God, too restrictive a view of God. Uh, we, we think that God is hesitant or God is reluctant to forgive our sins. Uh, but, but He's willing to forgive our sins. That's the great uh, confidence that we have before Him. I think of that wonderful verse in Psalm uh, 86 in verse uh, 5. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call on you. You see this wonderfully illustrated in the life of David. Would you just turn back to Second uh, Samuel chapter 12 for a moment? Second Samuel chapter 12. And this is the account where, where Nathan the prophet comes and through a parable confronts David with his sin. And remember, David is guilty of adultery. He's guilty of murder by proxy. Uh, he's guilty of deceit and deception. And for a period of almost a year, there was this great obstacle between him and his God that ruined and soiled his relationship with God. And then the, Nathan prophet, uh, the prophet Nathan comes and by the Spirit of God exposes David's sin through a parable. And David is brought to the point that uh, he sees uh, himself as the man in the parable. But notice verse um, 13. Let's go back to verse, uh, verse 13 um, of Second Samuel chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And here there's the little word and, and, which not all of the versions translate, but it is there. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you will not die. In other words, the moment that the words of confession were upon the lips of David, Nathan comes and says, The Lord has taken away your sin. The very moment he faced up to the sin and confessed that sin, that very moment that sin is taken away. Can you picture this? This is the man that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. This is the man who uh, said in Psalm 42, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for the living God. He said in Psalm 27, One thing I asked of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. And that man who had uh, enjoyed that depth of intimacy and fellowship with God is now held in the cords of his sin, weighed down with this great burden of, of spiritual debt. 
And maybe, maybe he had resigned himself to, the, to, to, to live in a state of barrenness and deception, miserable until the day that he died, that he had lost what, uh, that intimacy. That intimacy would never be restored. But God in mercy sends the prophet to restore his erring child. And as soon as the words of confession are uttered, Nathan uh, declares, the Lord has put away your guilt. He faced up to the problem of sin. No excuses, no blaming others, no shifting the focus away from himself. He says, I have sinned. And immediately, immediately, Nathan says, and Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. That grace, that's grace, and grace is greater than all our sin. We must believe as His erring children that an infinitely holy God can say in a moment, the Lord has put away your sin. Isn't that thrilling? If that doesn't do something deep down inside you, I wonder if you were ever saved. It's... It's staggering to think as soon as confession is made, the Lord took away the sin. If we would have confidence in what our Lord says here and believe that God is willing to forgive us, then we wouldn't have the problem that so many of us have of thinking that we need to grovel and wallow in conviction and sin uh, for uh, days, if not months if not years. Sometimes we don't believe in God's willingness to forgive. We think we have to moan and groan for, for a few months. When I was out in Peru, uh, one of the questions that the believers asked was, um, uh, you know, how long should discipline be exercised? You know, so if somebody's guilty for adul of adultery, how long, how long should they serve outside the church? How long should they be sentenced to? Or for stealing, how long should they serve? And I tried to say to them at that time that that's not the question. It's, it's when repentance comes. The moment of repentance is the moment of forgiveness. Could my tears forever flow? Could my soul no respite? No. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. The reason some of you don't confess that sin, your sin, is that you're not convinced in God's willingness to forgive you your sin. Some of you have a, a, a terribly narrow view of God. I am so glad at times that God's heart, His mercy, His grace is bigger than I think it is at times. Some may abuse the grace of God. That's true. But some of you need to use the grace of God and believe that God is willing to forgive. David confesses, and the moment that confession is made, Nathan says, the Lord has put your sin away. So when we pray this uh, petition, we are acknowledging that sin is an unpaid debt. We're acknowledging that only God can forgive that debt. We're acknowledging God's willingness to forgive that debt. 
And we're acknowledging that we need to confess that debt to God. God forgives without penance. God forgives without human mediators. God forgives without good works to compensate for sin. But God does not forgive without confession. Proverbs 28 and verse 13, he who, he who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces his sin finds mercy. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1 and verse 9. And here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is telling us to pray, forgive us our debts. He is surely underscoring the importance of confessing, indeed daily confessing, our sins before God. If forgiveness of the children of God was automatic, then why would Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our debts? I understand that the grounds of our forgiveness is not our confession, but it's the work of Christ. Again, 1 John 1 and verse 7, the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. But then John immediately adds, if we confess our sin in verse 9, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see that? The basis of my forgiveness is the blood of Christ. But confession is the trigger that releases the forgiveness of God to me. That confession is absolutely essential for forgiveness and restoring us to fellowship with God and His Son. Now, this is a problem to some people. When we were taught the doctrine of justification, we were taught that by faith God declares us to be righteous. He forgives our sin. He clothes us in the righteousness of His Son what the Reformers called the great transaction, my sin to him, his righteousness to me. A.W. Tozer says, the only sin Jesus ever had was ours, and the only righteousness we can ever have is his. Now, if the doctrine of justification is true, and it is, why then do I need to confess my sin? If for sin, past, present, and future are forgiven at the point of conversion, of justification, why then do I need to confess my sin? Well, you see, there is a difference, and it's an important difference. When you and I come to God as guilty sinners who have never, who have never repented and turned to Christ, we come not as disobedient children to a father, but as guilty criminals to a judge. And it is the judge who justifies us, who declares us to be righteous, who forgives our sin and adopts us into the, legally into the family of God. Justification is a judicial act. The term justification is a, a term that's borrowed from the court, uh, courtroom. And as I come uh, as a criminal before the judge who has broken the laws of Almighty God and by faith find my gaze fixed upon Christ and His infinite merit. He forgives my sin. He declares me to be righteous, and He adopts me into the family of God. Now, my relationship to Him is changed. 
He no longer is my judge. He is my Father. And as a Christian, when I stumble, I come to Him not as a criminal before a judge, but I come as a child, a wayward, rebellious child, but a child nevertheless, to a father. I notice to whom the prayer is addressed, our Father, forgive us our debts. This is not the prayer of an unbeliever. This is the prayer of a Christian who has entered into a father-son relationship. He's already been to the judge. He's been declared righteous. He's been adopted into the family of God. But in his ongoing relationship with his father, he needs to confess his faults to God. One transaction justification has to do with the court, and the other has to do with the home. This is wonderfully illustrated in John 13, 2 to 17. You remember that incident where Jesus takes the towel and begins to wash the disciples' feet, and he comes to Peter, and uh, Peter says to him, you know, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me or no share with me. Ideas of fellowship and intimacy. And then Peter, typical Peter, jumps in at both feet and says, wash my hands and my head as well. And the Lord answers very profoundly. He says, no. He says, you you already have had a bath. You don't need a bath again. You just need your feet washed. And it's, it's a lovely picture that we have been to, to, to the court. We have had, if you like, our bath, the bath of justification. But as we walk through the world, we pick up the dirt of the world. And we need to come continually, daily, as implied in the Lord's Prayer, to have our feet washed. We don't need the bath again. We don't need to be saved all over again. We just need to have our, our feet washed. And surely common sense tells us that we need continually to come to a father and confess that sin, that, that our conscience tells us that we can't look up into the face of Almighty God with, with sin in our hearts and in our minds that has never been dealt with uh, and, and uh, address Him as our Father and pretend that there's nothing wrong. It would be nothing more than a a brazen brat who would defy his Father's rules and regulations and there come to him and spring up onto his knee, look into his face and, and smile as if nothing has happened. And you and I are nothing but spiritual brazen brats. If we dare pray and worship with this debt hanging around our necks without facing up and confessing that sinfulness to Him. Confession is absolutely necessary. Notice the word debt is in the plural form, debts. And there, there may be an implication that it's not just uh, the debt um, universally or, or corporately. It's, it's, it's debts. We, we need to identify individual sins, and we need to confess those individual sins to Him. 
I wonder, is there debt, that uh, unresolved debt that has come between you and God and affected the sweet communion that you once enjoyed with God? You need, you need to confess that and face up to that. As a, as a child to his father, knowing that in his fatherly love, he will forgive, embrace, and accept you back. Jesus, Jesus said in that um, John passage, he, he said, unless I wash your feet, you have no part, no share, the ESV says, with me. And it seems to be, he seems to be implying that this unconfessed sin disrupts in some way our communion and our fellowship with God. So in this petition, we acknowledge sin as an unpaid debt. We acknowledge only God can forgive that debt. We acknowledge God's willingness to forgive that debt. We acknowledge the need to confess that debt to God. And lastly, we acknowledge that we have already forgiven the sins of others. Look at the second part of verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus gives a further explanation of the second half of verse 12. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, what does this mean? Is Jesus teaching that his forgiveness of us is conditional upon our forgiveness of others. In other words, that unless I forgive others, I will, um, uh, he will not forgive me. But notice the text carefully. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the past tense, the aorist tense in Greek, something that has already happened in the past. So it reads not as the authorized version reads, as we forgive our debtors, but rather as the ESV and the NIV read, as we also have already forgiven our debtors. Look, in his gospel uses the continuous tense, forgive us our sins as we keep forgiving, as we keep forgiving everyone indebted to us. In other words, to quote Leon Morris, the person seeking for forgiveness has already taken forgiving action with respect to those who have sinned against him. So our forgiveness is not conditional on our forgiving others. That would be a denial of the gospel and a denial of grace. But rather there is this assumption that the one who is asking for God for forgiveness has already forgiven others. That since this prayer is a prayer for disciples, Christians who can say sincerely, our Father who is in heaven, those who have experienced the forgiveness of God, have been adopted into the family of God, that those people are a community that uh, is characterized by forgiveness. The Lord is making the assumption that the forgiven man is a forgiving man. Or to put it more starkly, that grace makes you gracious. You see the principle that is assumed by Jesus, that when we come to God daily for the forgiveness of our sins, our Lord assumes 
that we already have forgiven those who have sinned against us. That a forgiving attitude is the mark of the forgiven person. The person who knows that God has removed his sins from him as far as the east is from the west, that person is tender and compassionate when it comes to those that have sinned against them. Because they are forgiven much, they must forgive much. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, There is none so tender to others as those who have received mercy themselves, for they know how gently God has dealt with them. I love that expression. They know how gently God has dealt with them. If our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our guilt and sin, and if we know what it is in the gospel to find relief from that sin so that we can have a conscience that is clear before God, and we have experienced the forgiveness of God washing over us, then we must be forgiving and tender towards those who have sinned against us. The basis of God's forgiveness of us is never our forgiveness of others, but I forgive others because of the forgiveness I have received. You remember that parable in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant? A man is brought before the king who owes 10,000 talents. That was a huge amount of money. The annual income from Herod's kingdom was 900 talents. So, 10,000 talents was the equivalent to 11 years of taxation in Herod's kingdom. Jesus is using hyperbole to make the point. But the king then graciously, kindly cancels that debt. But the forgiven man goes out and finds a man who owed him a owed him hundred denarii, not an insignificant amount, maybe three or four months' wages. But the man who had the high amount canceled had the man with the lesser debt thrown into prison. And Jesus calls that, that man a wicked servant because it is inconceivable, incomprehensible, incongruous that someone who has had such a huge debt canceled could hold a lesser uh, uh, debt against someone else. And the implication here uh, in the Lord's Prayer and, and in Matthew 18 is that the, the person either is unregenerate, because a forgiving spirit is the mark of the regenerate person. They have never uh, experienced, truly experienced the, the, the magnitude of the grace of God in their own hearts, or, or that they're in a, a cold, backslidden, indifferent state, that they have lost the the wonder, the sheer wonder of the forgiveness of God to their own soul. And I, I think that's what's being implied here um, in, in, and in Matthew 18, because Matthew 18, Jesus tells that parable in response uh, to a question asked by Peter, Lord, how often will uh, I forgive my, my brother who sins against me? And at the end of that parable, Jesus talks about that wicked servant being delivered to the jailers until the debt has been paid. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you 
who do not forgive uh, their brother from uh, their heart. And so, I don't want to argue against myself, but the implication here is that, that the Christian who has been forgiven will be forgiving, and if he's not forgiving, uh, he will lose that sense of communion and fellowship with God until he's brought to the point of forgiveness again. And so, the implication and the upshot of all that is that we must keep short accounts with God, but we also must keep short accounts with one another, because our unwillingness to forgive indicates a a, a soul, a person, has drifted from God and fails to appreciate how how good God has been to them, and that they're out of step out of fellowship with God Himself. So, we keep short accounts, confessing daily, but we also keep short accounts with others, not allowing an unforgiving spirit to spoil our relationship with with others. You know, I want to sing sometimes to Christians from Disney, let it go. That's what I want to say. Let it go. Let it go. Who sang that? Someone sang it in that show. <laughs> Let it go. And, and there are Christians, you know, that they, they hold on to grudges, and they say they've forgiven, but they haven't really forgiven. And you want to say to them, let it go. Just let it go. If you have experienced the forgiveness of God in your heart and you know what it is to be forgiven, can you not find it in your heart to be forgiving, tender, and compassionate towards other people too? Amen.